HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Today is another kind of pub day. I'll explain that in a second. But on today's episode, Adam Dooley, executive chef of the Brewers Association, authored The Beer Pantry as a guide to cooking for beer, not just with beer. It breaks down craft beer into a six-pack of flavor profiles, which include crisp and clean, hoppy and bitter, malty and sweet, rich and roasty, fruity and spicy, as well as sour, tart, and funky, which parallel a palatable lexicon that also describes the foods that best pair with them. So, I, I full disclosure, I helped co-author this book. But it, another full disclosure, I did this because I wanted to do this. Because Adam and I are, are drinking buddies, we are friends, and this is an amazing project that kind of came out of a curriculum. Or actually, we have to thank Jamie Law and Eli Highland Hall first for seating us next to each other at their wedding. But I, I've worked with Adam for how many years now? Five, six? I'm bad with years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, enough so that we traveled around the world together, literally, in Tokyo this last November, doing these beer and food pairing experiences and events. And it's been kind of this amazing, enlightening thing for me because as much of a beer drinker I am, I'm much more adventurous with food. So my beer kind of like profile, my, my portfolio of what I drink is limited to maybe Bell's Two Hearted all year round, Bell's Oberon during the summer, and then a couple other little pale ales here, um, maybe some sours, but yours is much broader than that in, in, in kind of both disciplines. So let, let's talk beer first, maybe, then food. Kansas City. Absolutely. Burnt Ends and Boulevard. <laughs> Two things that I grew up on. Yeah, it, it's a wild thing because most people's first uh, uh, beer is mainly uh, 
big beer, you know, mainstream market, but you were a Boulevard Brewery kind of guy. That it just happened to be so of growing up there that uh, Boulevard wheat was readily available in the in the fridge in the house that I grew up in, and that that happened to be what was easiest to grab and sneak into the backyard with. Uh, and you know, not to say that things didn't follow down the road that went into uh, what people assume normally, but that that happened to be the first thing to grab. And Boulevard Brewery, the kind of most famously uh, brewed Tank Seven. Uh, can you explain what that beer is and why it's kind of one of those that pairs with everything? Yeah, so Tank Seven refers to a tank they have at the brewery there, and um, they uh, they they look to brew this beer, and uh, really where it hit in there with what the yeast was doing and where it kind of came in to uh, draw across what a saison uh, or a farmhouse ale could be works well with the carbonation, uh, what the yeast does for a little bit of citrus, apple, hay, or wet grass notes. And then the it's got this hidden alcohol thing that we talk about every now and then where if you taste it to somebody you're like, oh, this is easy to drink. And you're like, well, careful, it's, you know, over 7%. Uh, but because of that, it can stand up to fattier things. But because it's hidden so well, it can also stand up to so many things that are lighter, such as a, a watermelon or a cantaloupe. See, these are the explanations I've been hearing for years. And it's kind of like sitting with someone who knows wine and says, so what wine should I drink with this? But bring that same discussion to beer has been something that, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe has been filibustered by other drinks for so long. But it has its rightful place at the table. And, you know, Tank 7 is so drinkable, so quaffable. But again, it has this like broad spectrum of flavor profiles and notes itself that it can go with this large breadth of other foods. Absolutely. It's one of the fascinating things where you could uh, on one day give somebody that with just something simple as a compressed melon and fresh herb dish. Or the next day you could actually serve it with something as rich as a cassoulet and they both work. And people, and to some extent, it may even taste like a completely different beer to people because of what's happening between the acidity and the compressed melon or the richness of a cassoulet. But you're getting the same palate reaction. But then what do you drink with burnt ends? <laughs> Whatever's cold. <laughs> and sometimes it comes down to that. Like, there is a science behind this pairing, or at least kind of a positive theory. But sometimes you just want something chilled. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times in talking to people, a lot of people will overthink it. And, you know, there's there's a saying that goes around for a lot of brewers that, uh, you know, a, a lot of media started asking all of us, uh, especially some of the, the brewers that have gotten more well-known out there, you know, hey, what's your favorite beer? And I, I honestly can't remember who started saying it, but uh, the best answer that's kind of run around and applies to burnt ends as well as other things is the cold beer that's in my hand right now. <laughs> the closest, yes. Yeah. Love the one you were with. Uh, but it, it wasn't until kind of Vail, Colorado, when you were cooking, I, I call it like opera ski food or, you know, chalet food when it's the cold of winter, that you realize beer had a, a place, you know, it, it deserved the same kind of highlight as, as wine did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this was uh, well over 10 years ago up in Vail and, you know, people would be coming down from a day on the slopes, and you you would see, you know, at that time, some of your big beer things floating around, but by and large, there were a lot of cocktails happening, and for some reason, a lot of big, beefy red wines. And I'm, like, sitting there, and I'm like, you just skied a whole day, and you're now down in a Bordeaux? Like, something seems a little off here, and I remember the, the restaurant, we had two tap handles there, and we ultimately ended up doing this event, and a whole bunch of red wine was around, and 
it was one of those random days that can happen in Colorado where it was it became super sunny and because the sun reflected off the snow we were literally working in t-shirts in the winter because it was just that warm and you're surrounded by these wines that are just deep dark rich jammy tannic great wines for certain things but at that point in time we were just standing there sweating and we were all just like I need a beer <laughs> but you need a beer to drink but then do you need a beer with the food that you were serving too we actually did we were doing a venison carpaccio dish and we were next to a, a lighter burgundian wine that really you know did did line up well with the dish but then there was one brewery out of probably 40 wineries a, at this event and uh, eventually, uh, the the guy who owns the brewery wanders over with a couple cans of uh, of a, a Kolsch, and we were just like, you know, a, that that age old thing started in of like, you've got some cans of beer, we've got some food, <laughs> let's do a little trade. But they ended up working together so well because the carbonation lifted the richness that we had in the carpaccio, and we had garnished it traditionally with capers and aioli and uh, grilled sourdough bread. So it had some texture to it, uh, and sourdough bread and the, and the light crispness of a colch kind of can play off each other. And it ended up working, and from there we kind of um, hit off a relationship there. And honestly, that's you know, beer has been a, a part of what I've done uh, my whole career because I've been lucky enough to work with people that I would consider, uh, multilingual in the sense of their beverage menus, uh, from working in Portland, Oregon to Vail to Kansas city, there was a focus on having strength in all three beverage menus from beer to wine to cocktails. And I was lucky to have that ingrained in me in an early age in my career. And this is craft beer because I wanted to find what that is too, because we're not talking about going and getting that bud, getting that major market, big brand. It's about respecting the ingredients of beer making in the process as much as you are, you know, cooking with local greens and, and great seafood. Yeah. We're talking about the small and independent brewers across the States that really put a focus on creating what the diverse styles of beer that we have available today without what they've all done. We wouldn't be sitting here drinking a slightly hazy IPA. We wouldn't be looking at the, you know, over 100 beer styles that have been classified and pushing even more that don't even have a name uh, because people are playing around. And it's one of the things that really ties the beer industry into the culinary industry because everybody pushes each other to find something next to do something different with the same ingredients. Yeah, no, that's an interesting and complex question because you do want to push the envelope, but you don't want to push it so far that it's undrinkable. That it, it, it's so specific to, you know, maybe a single dish or a single time that it's temporal and it's gone because you want to create the next Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. You want to create something that's on the market forever and for everything. I think that's every, you know, I think that's a lot of brewers' goals. I think just like it's a lot of chefs' goals to have that restaurant that becomes that timeless as well. But there's also this trend of some of these smaller brewers that are coming out now that will not brew the same beer twice. Um, they do it for many different reasons, or they'll come at it with a, we're only going to stay within our community and you can get our beer at our tap room and, uh, and you can drink it here or take it to go with you, or you can find it in a few small places around there. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that ties it in together so well too, is the sense of community that is there is between 
the brewing industry and the culinary industry. Well, I got to see that when you had Monk's Kettle in San Francisco and another great restaurant, Abbott Cellar, which were beer-specific, beer-focused restaurants. But my favorite thing was that you had this this uh, line into Russian River that no one else had. You were able to tap Pliny the Elder, which is one of the best IPAs ever invented. Um, but you also were able to tap into Pliny the Younger, this very special limited release. And you saw all the beer people come for that thing, but they stayed because the food at Monk's Kettle was specific to the beers that you were pouring. It wasn't just pub grub, and I'm using air quotes because some of it is pub grub, but just elevated. Uh, uh, you know, there were burgers, there were pretzels, but it was done in a way that only a chef could do. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things of, of where beer gets pigeonholed in that is that it goes with a, a chili or it goes with a burger or it goes with this. But when you look at what actually can make that out and you look now at what's on menus, you can go to multiple Michelin-starred restaurants and find some interpretation of a burger, some interpretation of a pretzel. In fact, I was kind of chuckling about this the other night when I got in New York City. We went somewhere, and uh, there was a dish that was pretzel-dusted calamari, and it's like you start to see them all inch on there, and you're like, all right, it's coming around now. Yeah, and it's not about playing high-low in this aspect either. It's it's about like putting things you know, evenly, like, like creating this, this forum where they can play together and it doesn't have to be partitioned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the food is one of the cornerstones of what's getting more people into beer because we talk so much and, you know, we've been doing this for long enough that we can know what somebody says when they say double IPA or IPA or, uh, you know, referring to the ABV or even to the, the mythical IBUs. But the majority of people uh, who who are new to beer or are just kind of casual drinkers and they, they like what they like, uh, those words scare them off. But they know what they like to eat. See, you're giving me way too much credit. The reason I did this project is so I, I'd inform myself of what I wanted to drink while I was eating X and, you know, conversely Y. But you know, I don't really have to do that because I hang around you enough and I can just ask you directly. But you're right. It is an intimidating thing. And I think you mentioned 100-plus beer styles before. Yeah. Um, I can't keep that all in my head. And that's why you broke it down to six. Yeah. It, it, the key with that is breaking it down to flavors that people can relate to. You know, I think IPA is one of the classic ones that we can always talk about out there because uh, a lot of people don't know what it stands for and you know case in point when traveling around the world uh you know when when we were in tokyo and they had uh, an ipa there and you know that the craft beer scene there is starting to emerge and the server came over to us and said oh you would like the ipa <laughs> yeah and you're like yes yeah yeah the ipa ipa but you know it's another thing maybe you can explain what an ipa is better than i but i know it stands for india pale ale and you know it had to do with spice trade routes and you know, some I used to think that it had to deal with like Indian flavors, you know, Indian spices, and it doesn't. What what is an IPA? It, you know, it has a lot of a lot of story behind it, but we're, really what it comes down to is the utilization of hops. You know, hops are are buying you know themselves a preservative, uh, and they go to making a a what should be a for a little bit longer than if you didn't have them in their shelf stable product, and then. We kind of discovered IPA here uh, in the in the states, and brewers started to take that on and started to push the envelope of hop varieties and working with farmers in the Pacific Northwest to to grow new hops that 
went either floral or herbal or citrus. And then they started getting into a double IPA where you would, you know, essentially double the amount of hops or triple the amount of hops for a triple IPA and so on. And then all of these hop varieties started coming in. And this is where it started to lose people because you use them in two different ways, whether it's in aroma or bittering. Now we're confusing people even more. (laughs) And so what it came down to is, okay, we need words that people can relate to. Uh, you know, when you when you have somebody who's trained in the ways of beer right now, and it's starting to change slowly, and they would approach a table, they would say they would start to rant off all these numbers, and you know, just so that people can understand what it is, they would they could sometimes go into this severe beer geek thing where they start going into SRM and original gravity and final gravity, which is how you find alcohol. All of these things scare people off, and when you scare somebody off, they're going to revert back to what they know. And so I said, we said. All right, let's let's if you walk up to the table and you say, "Would you like to start with something tonight that's a little bit crisp, clean, has a good amount of minerality and finishes bright?" That get, anyone can say yes, I like that or no, but what you don't know is if I just described a beer, a wine or a cocktail. Now you're in our pocket. Now we can bring you back a beer based on those words that you like and you're and you're in a vocabulary you're comfortable with and you can taste it with an open mind. And I must say that this LIC, Roberta's Pizzagate Pale Ale, is quite delicious. And on that, we're going to take a quick break. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Searchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill, here today with Adam Dooley and The Beer Pantry. Go to TheBeerPantry.com for more, and thank you to WP Design and Dovetail Press for printing this book. Again, full disclosure, I co-authored this, but it was so I could educate myself on what to drink with what I was cooking. And even more so, um, I've experienced Adam's cooking as well as pairing abilities at such amazing events like the Brewers Association uh, paired at, at the Great American Beer Festival in Denver annually. Um, I've yet to be saver in D.C. I am going this year. But can we talk about paired, which is an amazing thing. Last year was, what, 21 brewers, 21 chefs. They each make two dishes, you know, with the beer that pairs they're with. Um, on why that started and how crazy successful it's been. Yeah, and 2018 is going to see the 10th anniversary uh, of this event and what it's grown into. And it's funny, uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, 
this all happened uh, 10 years ago uh, when I met uh, some of the folks from the Brewers Association and the Great American Beer Festival had begun to expand in Denver. And they were like, we, we really want to incorporate food and then start bringing in pairing and start bringing in. Because let me interrupt you, because prior to that, prior to paired, there was pretzel necklaces. Well, there's still that. Yeah, I mean, there still <laughs> is on the main floor. And it is a spectacle, spectacle to behold. Yeah, I mean, you know, so in the in the front room uh, right now is how how it is. You have, you know, eighteen thousand of your closest friends trying over you know thousands of beers and interacting with hundreds of of brewers, and then we have this little room on the on another side of a wall with these windows and a little bit of outdoor space, which is such a gift to have there. And uh, we get to bring in you know twenty one chefs uh, this year. We're going to increase it a little bit more because of the the tenth anniversary of it and. Each chef takes a brewery, and they really go at it with set going back and forth between uh, the beers that the brewers want to pour and the uh, the food that the chefs want to make. And you know, one rule that we've had in place, the uh, you know, a lot of things have changed of how we've done it. But one thing we've had in place is that in order for this ro- in order for this room to happen, one of the key things is is that standing at the table when anybody comes up to it will be the chef that cooked the food and the brewer who brewed the beer. And so anybody can have that direct interaction where you really get to feel that story uh, and you get to understand where it's at. And we started out, you know, pretty safe uh, in doing things. And I think just as everybody did 10 years ago, we were all getting into it and nobody was really pushing pallets. And now we have, you know, uh, you know, at Alex Seidel from Mercantile uh, using oysters in a, in a dessert and pairing it to a beer that wasn't a porter. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, um, Kyle Mendenhall from Arcana rolling in with a frozen yogurt machine to uh, spin out some some frozen yogurt to pair with a beer where the cold and the chill factor of the yogurt on the palate changed the perception of the beer. Yeah, and it was a it was a green tomato like sour or saison, and it went with like a peach habanero. Yeah. I, I remember that so vividly because. They weren't disparate ingredients, but I'm like, how is he going to pull this off? And it was it was done so well, so seamlessly. Yeah, and wh- what you're seeing now is really this room has become a snapshot of not only where American cuisine is headed, but where the American beer scene is headed. Because now it's almost like, you know, the chefs are starting to get to know each other. And, you know, in, in 2017, we had 21 chefs from 14 states. Uh, plus, we had Mexico and um, uh, the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, coming over with chefs as well. And they all get to start talking because we introduce everybody on an email chain and everybody starts trying to kind of, they all push each other in a very positive way. And then the same thing happens for the brewers. Now they're wanting to do these, these beers that are coming back there and, you know, and really push it that way and have some fun. And so what it's turned into is it's really what you're seeing is either what's happening right now or what's about to happen in American cuisine and craft beer. And the parallels, it's, it's an absurd thing because, again, you may have said something about being bilingual. You know, uh, these brewers are able to speak this culinary language, and, and conversely, chefs are able to speak this beer language a little bit better. But it's not about being bilingual. It's the same language. It's yeah. the same lexicon. So you're, like, drawing from these same descriptors. So if you know one, you kind of know both. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a. I think one of the things that, that got there into it is like you know you start to learn these terms. You know, as as a as a cook, and th- whether it's through culinary school or whether it's through 
the kitchen team that, that's doing your training along and you hear words like Maillard reaction and then you meet a brewer and you, you realize that's the exact same thing that they need for their malt to gain all its flavor. And all of a sudden these connections start coming through time, temperature, uh, care, how, you know, how quick you can chill something down when it comes out of boil. And it's like, hey, am I talking about beer? Or am I talking about kitchen? Yeah. But then at the same time, these two things exist in the same world and you have a recipe radishes dipped in hot butter in the crisp and clean category. But that happened because you were harvesting hops and there happened to you radishes about. Yeah, that that actually just happened. Yeah, there was even more than radishes, to be honest. Um, but yeah, we were we were harvesting hops uh, down in southern uh, southern Colorado, and um, you know, if you pick hops by hand, it gets all over you, uh, and and it can be quite quite sticky um, on your hands, and you'll have the aroma and the flavor there. And then after that, you know, obviously you want to cook dinner, and if there's Things like we happen to be at this farm where we're able to just go start picking things from radishes to peppers to zucchinis to tomatoes and start cooking food that you just start to think about that. And then you start to think about the the classic idea of the dish of radishes and butter. And like, okay, well, I can add hops into butter very easily. I could add hops in the salt very easily. They can blend in. And now you're you're taking what the bitter of a radish would be and you're adding what the bitter of a hop would be and you're playing them off each other. And you're drinking that with a Pilsner or a Kolsch. Yeah, you're drinking it with something that's going to get a boost from the hops. You know, you're not going to drink something like this with with something that's that's really big and malty or really big and hoppy. You want it more delicate because you want the food to pop, and from that, and you want the carbonation specifically from the pilsner or the coals to pop the butter and the hops. I mean, I love that with grilled clams with spicy corn and garlic aioli. It's it's the same thing. You want some subtleties. You want a little bit of aroma, but you want the salinity of the clams to come through. You want the sweetness of the corn, and you want a little bit of that spiciness uh, of the corn as well. Absolutely, yeah. You know, working with shellfish like clams, you know, there's so many beer styles, whether it's uh, from, you know, the, the Pilsners and the Kolsch's out there that can that can pop that salinity and kind of really add it to where you get this gentle, subtle, briny note. But then right before it starts to become too much, the carbonation comes in and, and washes it away to reset you for your next bite. And you might have a little bit of lingering from the heat on there. You might have a little bit of base from the corn on there. Uh, but all in all, you're ready for the next exploration. And Whereas if you didn't have that and you just kept eating, the salinity would increase and you'd feel that by your mouth salivating more and, and you wouldn't have anything to erase that for you. But I could just say here, Try this beer with this dish after reading the beer pantry, of course. And I don't have to think about all that, which is so great. But there's an amazing story in here about fried chicken for Vinny. And that's Vinny, how do you pronounce his last name? Asolurzo. From Russian River. And he is obsessed with fried chicken in in an absurd way. And what is his passion for fried chicken? And why were you able to kind of incorporate that story and this recipe into this book? Really, what it kind of came down to, and you know, there's some of uh, several, well, most all of the brewers are are intense recipe writers, and so you know, you need that when you when you're going to make a beer the same way each time, every time, and so fried chicken kind of became one of those things. It's there's so many ways to do it. Okay, well, what's what's the best way? 
you know, what's what's going to make the best, most successful thing that, that I want to eat, that I want to put in front of people and say, here's where it is. And it's one of those things where you get to tweak this recipe down to, you know, if you're doing it on a gram scale to eighths and quarters of grams or whatever pinches and here's out of teaspoons of all of the spices that go into it. How long do you let the buttermilk sit in it? Do you let the buttermilk sit in it? Do you dredge it? Do you add buttermilk to your flour? So you have the ability to put your scientific brewer's mind into this recipe. There's a temperature for the oil. There's a time for this. There's a measurement for that. There's an exactness for this. And you can line it up. And then, to be honest, it's fried chicken. You you just want to eat this, too. Yeah. And it's fun to make for people. And it's also fun to do it different ways. I love how Vinny's caveat is it's not fried chicken unless it's bone in. Yeah, um, in you know to go even further, it's like legs and thighs only. Yep, and of course there is a burger in this book because you can't have a beer without a burger or a burger without a beer. Uh, in this case, you have two beers with the burger, and you can explain that another day. Uh, people can experience that, but you know, malty and sweet. Um, you know, all these other flavor profiles where you're you know obviously have that ingrained grain profile. Um, you're starting to edge on desserts, too, like a budino with brown ale caramel. There's later, you know, uh, darker beers with a um, mini stout milkshake in a devil's uh, food cake. Where does beer lay in the spectrum of where it should be drank on the menu from, you know, before dinner, apps, entrees, desserts, after dinner? You know, it, it crosses the board. One of the things that we're starting to see, and I think we're going to get there in a second, is that, you know, you can end super heavy with the classic of a, of a rich and roasty beer with chocolate and, and really heavy. But what you're also seeing now uh, is that more and more chefs are creating lighter and lighter desserts. Well, with that, there's also this parallel of more and more brewers are making lighter and lighter beers. And if you've ever, you know, if you've ever ended a, a meal with a very light wit beer and something like a sorbet and angel food cake or berries or uh, a, you know, something with lemon or an olive oil cake, you walk out feeling refreshed versus the kind of common rich and roasty, deep, chocolatey, moussey, which we do address here because there are times and places where you absolutely want that. But if you're going to have a big meal, Walking out refreshed is a phenomenal feeling. It's true. And I find some of the sour, tart, and funky beers most refreshing because those rely less on hops and more on these crazy yeast strains to make those, you know, uh, flavors kind of pop and burst. And the spectrum of those have been really interesting to me lately. How, how do they incorporate into the menu, into food? So they can they can go across the board. You know, if you're starting with something that's got a little bit of funk to it, whether it's from Britannomyces, which produces, you know, a little bit more of that kind of barnyard funk flavor, that goes well with charcuterie, to riettes, to chicken liver mousse, to, uh, you know, can even work well with the earthiness of beets if you incorporate a little bit of grains in there. And then if you want to get into the middle range of some game bird, whether it's duck or quail um, or some richer cheeses, uh, you know, then you're coming into ones that are more sour or maybe you have some fruit added to them. Then if you want to go towards the dessert spectrum of it and you want to go there, play off the spice notes that the yeast gives into it. A traditional spice cake like we use in the beer pantry, you know, can work really well. Very simply, ice cream can pair with these as well, too, or playing off the fruits that can be in those beers. And so they they have a fitting for, for where people want to match them. 
So if you get the Beer Pantry Cookbook, you not only get great recipes, you get suggestions of beer per recipe, but it also gives you a broader idea of what you end up liking and what goes with what. So it kind of gives you the keys to the car. Uh, not to say that you should be drinking and driving, but it, it really gives you this roadmap to how you should be, you know, pairing these things together. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that was, I think, one thing that stayed constant when you and I started talking about this book two years ago is that whether you like beer or not, you will find recipes you like in this book because they're, it's, they're good recipes, it's good food. And then if you like beer you're going to find something that pairs with the beer that you like. And then if you want to learn about it or you're wanting to try it more, you're going to have this familiarity with you. That's one thing I think I've found as a, as a chef, and we've talked about this a lot, is that when you take somebody on an adventure, if you have something to keep them in their comfort zone every now and then that they can kind of come back to, then they're going to end up exploring further because they know they have that little anchor spot they can go back to on the plate or in the glass. Lastly, pizza beer. What would you drink? <laughs> um, what we have right in front of us right now. Wonderful. Well, Adam, thank you so much for bringing me on this journey throughout the world, throughout the spectrum of beer flavors, profiles, and great recipes. Check out thebeerpantry.com right now. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. A big thank you to WisconsinCheese.com, Music by Cookies, and David Tattashore Engineering. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.